Father in heaven, you are beautiful and glorious and wonderful and good. We believe this no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what's happening in this world. We believe, God, that you are good. And Lord, even as we start to see a little bit of move back to normalcy, back to at least a little bit of ministry that we can do and be seeing one another more, Lord, as we sort of see just some glimmers of light at the end of this, Lord, we pray that we would be wise and cautious, but at the same time ready to do what you want us to do. And Lord, we know now that you want us to study your word. It has been your will now for several weeks for us to gather as families and spend time, maybe as families, maybe alone before the television or looking at our phones or computers, Lord. It's been your will for the last several weeks for us to do this, and we accept it gladly. Lord, help this to enrich us as we study your word today. Convict us of sin. Call us to truth. Call us to the real gospel, not the fake stuff that is so readily embraced by unbelievers and people willing to give up some but not most or all for Jesus Christ. We pray that we would surrender all and that we would only pour into our minds, into our hearts, into our lives truths that are consistent with the gospel. Help us in this, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it is a privilege to be with you again, albeit through the internet. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We are going to pick up where we left off some weeks ago. Jesus was sending out His twelve with some others on that very first evangelistic mission. Jesus had chosen His twelve, and they would go out and with the help of some others, they would go out and they would preach like Him. They would do miracles like Him. They would call people to repentance like Him, call people to faith like Him. And so here in chapter 10 of Matthew, after He picks His twelve, they assemble, and He gives them some instruction on this first mission. And these truths would not just define them in that first mission. Even listening to the language of Jesus, we realize these truths should be for all of ministry in this age of the church. It should define our own philosophy of ministry even now, 2,000 years later, as we do ministry in the church. This week I was reading a story about a German king in the 1200s by the name of Frederick. King Frederick was convinced by the Pope to go on a crusade a crusade to the Holy Land to to forcefully take the Holy Land for Christians away from the Muslims and give it to Christians. Pope Gregory was a little bit irritated with the Muslims. He wanted bloodshed. He was angry with them. They had killed Christians in battles, and so he hired, essentially, he hired Frederick and his army to go down and, and punish the Muslims there in Jerusalem. Frederick agreed, took his army, hired many other conscripts, and mercenaries and arrived down in Palestine only to find that the Muslim forces were engaged in a great battle against themselves. There were different factions fighting against one another, two major factions, and the the battle was elsewhere. It wasn't in Jerusalem. It was elsewhere. This war was going on between Muslims. And so, Frederick just came into Jerusalem and 
took control. In fact, he went into the church of the Holy Sepulchre, and uh, some religious uh, leaders there anointed him as, as king of Jerusalem, not just of, of a part of Germany, but as king of Jerusalem. There was no bloodshed. There was no loss of life. There was no battle. There was no war. There was no loot. He just went in peacefully and took over Jerusalem, set up his guards on the exterior parts, and became king of Jerusalem. Well, the Pope didn't like that. The Pope wanted bloodshed. He was furious with Frederick when he wouldn't fight these battles and get all this loot and bring it back with as many dead bodies as possible. The Pope did not like that. He wanted Muslims to die, and he was furious with Frederick, so furious that he placed the city of Jerusalem under an interdict, if you know what that means. He excommunicated Frederick, and he demanded that Frederick give up the throne and he told Frederick to come back, and he told the, the, the Christian people all across uh, that part of the world, as Frederick and his army made their way back to Germany, he told them to throw their refuse at Frederick and his armies. This is a story of unrealized expectation. The Pope expected Frederick would wage war. The Pope expected that he would fight and he would kill Muslims, lots of them. The Pope wanted there to be death. He wanted there to be punishment. He wanted there to be loot. In fact, Frederick just taking over Jerusalem, you could say, wasn't even his primary goal because he wasn't happy with it. His primary goal was bloodshed. His primary goal was loot and punishment. Having Jerusalem under the auspices of the Holy Roman Empire was actually secondary and because he had unrealized expectations, the Pope was angry. Unrealized expectations. Well, this was true of the people in Jesus' day as well. They wanted a Messiah to show up and bring military and political force to the people of Israel. He wanted him to show up and rid Israel of the bondage of Rome. He wanted them, uh, the Messiah to, to, they wanted the Messiah to come back and, and bring Israel into international dominance. They wanted a Savior, but they prayed for a military Savior, a political Savior. Instead, they got a suffering servant who saved people's souls, demanding repentance and faith, asking for self-denial. He preached, but he didn't preach about Israel's dominance and victory and overcoming the forces, military and political forces. No, he preached a message of repentance and self-denial and lordship, surrender to God. And so, Jesus told His men that because of this unrealized expectation, He told His apostles there and the others that had gathered that he was getting ready to send out here in Matthew 10. He, he told them, be, because of this, as you preach the gospel, the gospel will be divisive. People will be angry. The message will divide even the closest of relationships, families. Some of you live with this divisiveness in your own family. You know exactly what Jesus is talking about because some of you are believers. Maybe one spouse is and one spouse isn't. You know exactly what Jesus is talking about in terms of what's happening in the kingdom. 
Now, here in Matthew chapter 10, we find that this divisive reality of the gospel is one of the perspectives that Jesus reminds them about in regard to this first mission trip. The gospel properly preached will not meet people's expectations, and therefore it will be divisive. People will be angry, and they will divide even the closest of relationships. We can see this in verses 34 to 39. Let me look at this. Let me read this passage. Let's look at it together, but let me read it for you as Jesus again draws us to these perspectives of this first mission. Verse 34 of Matthew 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the Word of God. Would you be happy if this whole virus situation was kept hidden from us by the government? Would you appreciate it if the president or the Senate or the House or maybe all of them conspiring together had decided to, to quiet this issue, to, to keep these things and what was happening as far as this virus away from us and, and hide it and keep these kind of secrets? Of course not. We demand truth. We demand transparency. In fact, there are companies that, that are established just to, to make sure there's transparency in terms of the government, in terms of doctors and, and uh, uh, physicians. We want transparency. We want the truth. We feel cheated if the truth is kept from us, and we grow angry if the the truth is kept from us. In fact, revolutions happen when governments are secretive and hide reality from their people. We want these truths even if they are truths that are hard to handle. In fact, we could say this just as a general reality for us, a general truth for us. We want the truth. We want all the truth. This is a general reality, a general truth, except when it comes to biblical truth, particularly the hard truths of the Bible about our own hearts. People, by and large, they want truth. They want all the truth. They want nothing but the truth, except when it comes to biblical doctrine, the truth of one's own heart from God's perspective the reality of Satan's deception, the reality of false teaching, the reality of false preaching, the reality of apostasy, the reality of wolves and sheep clothing, the reality of judgment, the reality of sin. We want the truth, except when it comes to these things. People don't want to hear about this. Paul the apostle predicted that there would be a day when so-called Christians, fake Christians, would surround themselves with false preachers 
who tickle their ears, who make them feel good, pat them on the head, give them a gospel of their own expectation. That is, a gospel that is positive, uplifting, with nothing hard about it. Nothing that would ruffle their feathers. Did Paul's prediction come true? You bet it did. Not just in the first century, but in the 21st century. There are whole swaths of fake Christianity that's populated by warm, uplifting, optimistic sermons, nothing there that would be too offensive to anyone. And listen, they they certainly don't come right out and give false doctrine or give some kind of uh, of heretical uh, statement. Listen to me carefully. It's not what they do say, it's what they don't say. They don't talk about God's judgment. They don't talk about hell. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about punishment. They don't talk about atonement. They don't talk about repentance. They don't talk about surrender. They don't talk about brokenness. They certainly don't talk about self-denial and sacrifice. They don't call out false doctrine. They don't call out false preaching. They don't call out false religions. Why? Because their objective is to give the people what they expect a good feeling. This is a business for these preachers and ministries, and they profited greatly in this business. The last thing they want to do is wreck their business model. Now, you'd feel momentarily better if your doctor lied to you even if you were dying of some terminal illness. You'd feel momentarily better even if you were about to die. And the fact of the matter is, this is true in preaching as well. Even if your destiny is hell, even if you've never repented of your sin, even if you've never come to Christ, even if you've never had true faith, you'll feel momentarily better if a preacher lies to you and tells you everything's going to be all right. And so that's what these preachers do. Well, we have no problem saying that a doctor who lies to us, who hides the truth, should be expelled, not be allowed to practice medicine anymore. In fact, possibly even be prosecuted, put in prison. But when it comes to preaching, the human race, by and large, not only allows false teachers to exist, humans seek out preachers who do that very thing, who lie to them week in and week out. Preachers who avoid the hard truths of the gospel and focus merely on what is appealing, merely on what meets people's expectations. It's become so common in our day that this expectation that, preacher, you're going to make me feel good about myself, you're going to focus your attention on self-esteem and lifting me up emotionally week in and week out, that this expectation is levied on all preachers, that they deal little with Scripture and focus most of their attention on making people feel good, regardless of their spiritual condition. About once every other year, I get a letter, and it's the same letter. It's a different person, different handwriting, different words, different vocabulary, but about every 24 months, I get the same letter. It just so happens a couple of weeks ago, I got a letter, this letter. This time, it said something like this, 
Pastor, I was listening to your sermon. Don't be talking stink about other religions. Just be positive about what Baptists are doing, not negatively. Negative. Boldly unsigned. It's always ironic to me that people who seem to want you to be peaceful and kind and warm have no desire to actually have a relationship with you and talk to you and find out what the Bible says. They just want you to pat them on the head and send them on their way and are mad at you, really, ironically. They're sort of angry with you if you don't do that. Well, sir or madam, whoever wrote that, I can't be faithful to my calling and not warn you about false teachers, false religions, bad teaching. I can't be faithful and not warn you about the dark condition of your soul without Christ. I can't be faithful to what the Bible tells me to be as a preacher and not do these things. It tells me. In fact, when it describes preaching, the words that are used to to describe preaching that Paul uses to describe preaching are rebuke, refute, and correct with great patience and exhortation. I can't be faithful as an elder and not refute those who preach and teach falsely. I can't be faithful as a pastor and not warn my sheep against falling into these traps. You may not want the truth. It may not make you give you the warm fuzzies. But I can't be faithful to what the Bible tells me to be as a preacher and not give you the whole truth. And I'm in good company, by the way. Paul did this. John did it. Peter did it. They called out false religion. Even when those churches and teachers called themselves Christians and Christ followers, Paul, John, Peter, not to mention Jude, even James, they they actually named names. They named churches and religions and, and people. They called out the error of the human heart. They demanded genuine repentance and genuine faith. In fact, when Paul was telling Titus how to identify men who are qualified to preach, giving these qualifications, he says, this man must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, this is a a measure of a faithful pastor. Can he rebuke, can he refute false teaching? This is true in the Old Testament as well. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 6.14, Ezekiel 13.10. You may want to write those down. Jeremiah 6.14, Ezekiel 13.10. The prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, say that one of the signs of a false prophet is that they say peace when there is no peace. And they're up there crying out peace. Why would false prophets do that? Because it's profitable. It gives them followers gives them a a hearing, gives them a large congregation. So I can't in good conscience just ignore biblical instruction about what it means to be a true teacher, preacher of the Word of God, to be a true pastor and shepherd your soul and not warn you about these things and not give you the, the hard truths, not just about false teaching or false doctrine, but also about the condition of a person's heart unless they repent. And I don't want to part company with the apostles. And you know who else who I don't want to part company with? Jesus Himself. Look at our, look at our text here. It's, it's quite shocking as you look at it. Maybe not expected. Verse 34, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. 
I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Verse 36, because of the preaching of the gospel, because you're going to go out and share the gospel, he says, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Verse 39, whoever finds his life, meaning whoever is trying to seek a a fulfilled life, whoever's trying to seek this life and to bless his own heart and bless his life and enrich his own life, whoever seeks that, and that's his primary objective in life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, think about Jesus, all this, his healing ministry, his acts of kindness, the kind of the, the compassion, and we studied this, the, the level of compassion that Jesus was capable of, a, truly a supernatural level of, of love and compassion, even on those who, who didn't like Him, those who hated Him. All the healing that He did, the feeding of thousands of people, you might expect, because of all that compassion, because of all that love, you might expect Jesus' sermons to sound something like this. I've come to help people find their full potential. I've come to make people find their self-esteem. I have come to help people have a positive outlook on life and claim victory over whatever hardship that they face. I've come for people to find wealth and healing I've come not to show theological judgment on anyone or say negative things about anyone, but just to be positive. But Jesus didn't say any of those things, did He? Those are the words of some of the most popular preachers in America now, but not the words of Jesus. Jesus says, I've come with a sword. He condemns the Pharisees who were the the legalist of his day. He condemns the Sadducees, who were the liberals of the day. He grabbed a whip. He goes up into the temple. He clears out all these religious profiteers. Jesus, and we studied the Sermon on the Mount, He's not a man to preach light, smiling, non-demanding, placating sermons in order to draw a crowd. That's the method of a false teacher, and it defies the truth of the gospel. And so, in our passage today, Jesus is explaining this. He says that His message at its core is divisive, and that's because it doesn't meet people's expectations. It's unrealized expectations. They wanted self-worth. They wanted self-esteem. They wanted wealth. They wanted power. They wanted dominance, freedom. They didn't want self-denial. And so Jesus tells His disciples, because people want to be placated, because they want to be patted on the head and told to be warm and filled, when you come to them with a message of the gospel, there will be those who understand it, because God is doing a work in their heart, and there will be those who hate it. Don't think, He's saying, don't think that the gospel message will unite all people. It certainly unites many people, and one of the messages of the Bible is how it unites people from very various backgrounds and uh, all the the different nationalities and ethnicities, how God brings them all together. The uniting that happens because of the gospel is magnificent, but that's not everybody. It certainly unites many people, but it does not unite all people. In fact, generally speaking, it divides the human race into two groups. 
those who receive the message of the gospel and those who reject it. The message of self-denial divides even the closest human relationships. It is a divisive gospel. All right, just to remind you where we are and what's happening in Matthew chapter 11 here, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 10 here, at the beginning, and just to sort of go back what we've, what we've seen so far, at the beginning, He chooses His 12 disciples, and we, we talked about that for a couple of weeks. He, he wants to send them out, and we find out from looking at the other gospels, some others went with them. As many as 70 other people went with them and followed along and, and helped the disciples, the apostles, that is. But before He sends them out on this first little mission trip, He wants to sit them down and give them some instruction. And like I said at the beginning, this instruction is applicable not just to that first mission trip, to that first small group of people. This instruction is put here, and Jesus, even His own language, it's, it seems like he is, he is clearly looking forward to many, many years of ministry. And so, this instruction is not just for that moment and that time. This is instructive for us in our ministry, in our church, even today. So, we looked at this instruction, we broke it down this way. Verses 5 to 15, that was principles of the first mission. It took a little bit to look at those things, I think one Sunday. The second part of uh, this chapter of Jesus' instruction, we called the persecution of the first mission. We spent one or two Sundays there. Now, we're on this final section of Matthew chapter 10. It's the longest section, it's the biggest section, and so we've broken it down into four different parts. That's 26, verses 26 to 42. If you approach ministry, you need to have certain perspectives. And that's what we've called it, this last section of Matthew chapter 10, perspectives of the first mission. And if you can remember back several weeks ago, before all this coronavirus stuff hit us and I was preaching, we were going through these perspectives of the first mission, and we had looked at the first two perspectives. The first perspective is this, the fearless endeavor of evangelism. You going out here, you have to have a level of courage, a level of fearlessness. You will be tempted, Jesus says, to fear man. They will not like the message. They will despise you. They will persecute you. But don't fear man. Rather, fear God. And if you remember that Sunday, we looked at several ways to combat that fear of man as you seek to evangelize and carry the message of Jesus with you. The second perspective is found in verses 29 to 30, uh, excuse me, 29 to 33, and that is a reminder of the amazing love that God has for His children. Jesus says, I don't want you to fear, I want you to bring this truth, and I want you to be reminded of the amazing love that God maintains for His children. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And He's just been explaining how God knows even the smallest occurrence in a sparrow. God has a special love for His children, and you are of great value. Don't fear. God loves you in a very special way, and I think we carry that with us. In fact, this is so important. I think Jesus is why Jesus, at the very end of His ministry, as He's commissioning and giving this great commission to His, his disciples, He says, Behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. He wants them to know of that love, of that intimacy, of that relationship. A very important perspective as we do ministry. Now, we're at that third perspective, 
And the third thing that he's re- reminding us of is this. Number three, the divisive reality of the gospel. And that's what this section, beginning in verse 34, that we read a moment ago, that's what this section is all about, and that's what today's, if you haven't already figured out, that's what today's message is all about. The divisive reality of the gospel. The gospel properly preached, properly announced, properly told, properly defended, properly articulated is about self-denial. It's about lordship. It's about repentance and faith. It's about sin and atonement. And when it is preached properly, it is a rebuke to the false gospel. It is a rebuke to what Robert Schuller called the gospel of self-esteem. It is a rebuke to the gospel of prosperity that is so popular today. It's a rebuke of the gospel of positive thinking. It's a rebuke of the gospel of half-hearted devotion. It is a rebuke of all false gospels. And therefore, the true gospel, Jesus says, when it is properly articulated, will be hated by some and loved by others. In other words, it will divide. Unless God is someone working in someone's heart, people don't want to hear the truth about their souls. They don't want to hear doctrine of God. They don't want the demand of self-denial. They don't want to hear the condition of their heart without Christ. And they've leveled different expectations about the kind of gospel and the kind of Jesus that they want. And when you come to them and bring them the true Jesus and the true gospel, they get angry. They simply want affirmation and empty platitudes. Jesus says, gentlemen, just like me, when you begin to preach... When you begin to call people to believe the true God, the true gospel, to worship me, some will accept it and some will reject it. People perhaps, like I said, in the closest of human relationships, family, people and families will be divided on the subject of the gospel. Some will love it, some will hate it. Look at our text there again, verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Stop right there. Two things I want you to know about this divisive gospel. Two basic points I'm going to make today about this divisive gospel, just principalized in our hearts so we can know what Jesus is saying here. The first one is this, A, if you're taking notes, the gospel does indeed divide humanity. The gospel divides humanity. Jesus starts with a a pretty uh, shocking statement here, actually. Don't think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. Wait. Christmas wasn't that long ago, Pastor John. I hadn't forgotten the cards I got and the cards that I sent that say on them, peace on earth. Has Jesus decided that his ministry is going to be different? Has Jesus decided he's going to refute what the angel said in Luke chapter 2? Is 
He refuting peace on earth and goodwill to all men? Is that what Jesus is? Is Jesus refuting that? Not at all. In fact, Jesus is confirming that. If you want to flip over there, you can. But Luke chapter 2, verse 14, if you read it in the ESV or the NASB or possibly in some other versions that are more literal, word for word, what you will find is what the angel said is this, peace among those whom God is pleased. So right there we get the idea that the arrival of Jesus, the, the message of the gospel, the advent of Christ will be a blessing and peace to some, but not to others. The peace of which the angel, angel sang was a peace to some. And I know some of our traditional translations and some of our songs, we say, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. And I suppose maybe in a broad sense, the gospel, the message of salvation is, there is this broad redemptive effect and the Spirit does uh, impact the world broadly, but I don't think that's what it's saying. It's peace to the hearts of those whom God is, shows His grace, shows His favor. In fact, if you read on in Luke chapter 2, and we studied this around Christmas time, Luke chapter 2, or at least a couple Christmases ago, Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, you find this great godly prophet, Simeon, eight days after Jesus is born, they bring Jesus for the little ceremony there at the temple, and they bring Jesus into the temple, and there's this, this man there who turns out to be a prophet, Simeon, and what does the prophet Simeon say of Jesus? Eight, eight days old, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed. In fact, he uses that word, a sword. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, speaking to Mary and Joseph, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There is that division. Here's the prophet Simeon right there in Luke chapter 2 talking about this division, the, the divisive nature of the gospel. Now, you can't read this passage without even thinking of, of Mary standing at the foot of the cross watching her son being put to death and that sword coming up and, and piercing him. Why did they do that? Because they hated his message. He was not the Messiah they were looking for. And so they killed him. If he's all about peace, why do they kill him? Because they hate the true gospel. Their expectation was of a different kind of peace with a different kind of Messiah. And so when the gospel is clearly taught, yes, there will be those who, who rise and repent. They're open, they're willing, they're surrendered to Jesus, and there are those who hate that message, and they fall because they wanted a different kind of Savior, unrealized expectations, not the Savior that they were looking for. I love what Jesus says to His disciples in John chapter 14, uh, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Did you catch that? In other words, I'm bringing a peace, and it's coming to you, but it's not the kind of peace as the world defines peace. Their peace and just to give you a little asterisk, a little digression here, the peace that the world wants is a peace of utopia without God. It's a peace that's achieved without Christ. It's tranquility without atonement. It's joy without repentance. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that peace is impossible. Look no further to all the governments and politicians and all the wars that have been raging through centuries. I mean, the objective, you think, that people and these governments, especially those people who naively walk around and say, well, humanity is generally good. If we're generally good, you'd think we'd have achieved peace by now. We can't do it. This idea of utopia without Christ is absolutely impossible, and Christ will prove that at His return. How's the human peace working out for us terribly? No, what we really need is the true peace of God, which is the peace of reconciliation with God through the blood atonement of Christ. But people don't want that peace. They don't want a peace that's achieved through self-denial. They want a peace that's achieved through self-esteem and self-pleasure. So the human race divides over this. Some accept the message of the gospel. They understand it. They believe it. They find genuine peace. Others hate it. They reject it. Maybe they don't even hate it in terms of their emotion. Maybe they don't even think of their own minds as hating it, but they reject it nonetheless. They prefer something a little more uh, palatable, a little more tasty, a little more appealing to their emotions, and so therefore they reject Christ, they reject the gospel, and they divide themselves from the true believers. But there are those who repent, those who follow Christ. And Jesus is saying, I want you to remember this. The gospel will divide, but there will be those who who resist it. There will be those who accept it. So don't give up. The true gospel is the only way people can find this peace. And so the second part of this section, the second part of these verses, Jesus demonstrates, he identifies how people will find true peace peace, and this is B if you're writing it down, the gospel demands self-denial. People want peace by self-accomplishment, self-congratulation, self-imposed morals. They want peace that is consistent with their own ideas. They want a peace that's physically beneficial to them, that gives them some level of physical prosperity on earth. In a sense, they want credit for the peace in their lives. And so when the true Jesus is presented to them and He says, the reason there is no peace is because you are not at peace with God. You are the problem. And the only solution to this is to deny yourself. And people are told that they are ironically, these people who seem to be so peaceful, they ironically are angry, and they reject the true gospel, which further proves that they are not capable of peace at all. Look at verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life, and the idea is not just stumbles into, but whoever is about the task of making his life rich and good and profitable above all else. Whoever has that as his objective, 
Whoever seeks, you could say it, whoever seeks to have his best life now will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Just so you know, the word in the Greek, kai, English we spell K-A-I, it can be the word and or but. I keep on using the word but in verse 39 there because it is in contrast to the phrase before. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a bonus. You won't be quizzed or tested over that. I just added that. It's not even my notes here. Here Jesus answers that question. Why does the gospel mean peace for some and war for others? Why is the gospel like a sword that divides humanity, even people of the closest human relationship? Why does this message of self-denial divide people? Why can't people just accept it and see it? I think to answer that question, we have to understand where the human heart is before being born again, before regeneration, before God does a work. What is the condition of the human heart without a working of God as it hears the gospel? What is the condition of the human heart? To understand this, there's a lot of places we can go. You can think of uh, Colossians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. You could do an exposition of John 11 where Lazarus dies and is raised up, and Lazarus being that that picture dead in the grave, Christ's power, the only thing that could raise him. But one of my favorite descriptions of the human heart uh, without Christ is found in Romans 5. Romans chapter 5, Jesus is describing all these wonderful blessings of being justified, what glorious thing it is to be justified. And in order to give that description, he, he, he does, uh, I say Jesus, the apostle Paul is giving a description of uh, what the human heart is without Christ. And in order to do this, he wants us to sort of compare it with what we were without Christ. So, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and I want you to look at a phrase here right there at the beginning of verse 6, and it's repeated three times in this section. While we were still, right? Just mark that in your minds, maybe even underline it in your Bible. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person he would dare even to die. But God shows His, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved from Him from the wrath of God. Saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son... Did you notice that while we were, while we were what? Enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. He goes on to say, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Wonderful passage. Paul, again, is enumerating these blessings of being justified And again, our objective in looking at this is to say, what what does this say about the human heart prior to salvation? First of all, it says, while we were weak. The word there literally means incapable. They would use that word to talk about the disabled. 
People are incapable of doing something. In fact, it was commonly used to talk about powerlessness, incapability, not just slightly weak or less capable, but incapable. That's the idea. So, prior to salvation, we were weak in what respect? Paul goes on to talk about the penalty of sin. We were weak in in terms of we couldn't pay the penalty for our sin. We couldn't produce the righteousness. It was impossible. We were completely incapable. We were disabled. We couldn't do this. It's not just, when we use that word weak, sometimes we think of weak and innocent like a little baby, but it's, it's not that. We're not simply in, in, in sort of weakened, a weakened state. We are completely incapable of atoning for our own sin. We're guilty, and we're not innocent like a baby is. We're guilty. We're weak because of a rebellion. We're weak because of our moral failure. We're weak because of our rejection. We're completely disabled. Verse 8 makes this a little bit clearer. While we were what? Still sinners. And just so you know, Paul is not saying, hey, now that you're Christians, no sin. That's not true. We we know that uh, in our own lives, experientially, that's not true. And Paul, in all his instruction to the Christians, tells us, and even his own heart, tells us that Christians struggle with sin and we ought to battle sin and fight sin. Why would he say, while, while we were still sinners? What does that word sinners mean? Well, it means unrepentant sinners, faithless sinners, rebellious sinners, unbelieving sinners, sinners who are rightfully damned to hell, sinners who deserve the full wrath of God for their sin and depravity. That's what he means by sinners. Whether they believe themselves to be dead in sin or not is beside the point. The fact is, Prior to a work of God in the heart of an individual, no matter how seemingly moral, no matter how seemingly spiritual, if they have not been regenerated by the Spirit and repented, followed in repentance and faith, that person is defined by one thing, sin. And that brings us to that final description of all of us and all human hearts before salvation, before they've repented, verse 10, while we were enemies. And this means not enemies of one another, though we are that. This means enemies of God, and we know that because he goes on to talk about reconciliation with God. While we were His enemies, God's enemies. Again, whether a person feels like they are God's enemy or not is beside the point. This is biblical, divine truth about the heart of a human prior to salvation. They are enemies of God. And if you're a believer, you look back, that's how you ought to designate your prior uh, salvation life. I know what many of you must be thinking. You're looking back, Christians, maybe you're looking back to your childhood, maybe looking back before before you were saved, and maybe you're thinking, well, I wasn't really an enemy of God. I mean, that's really overstating it a bit. I had some sins, and I did some things wrong. I didn't have faith yet. I, I hadn't repented of my sin and followed Christ yet, but, but I was still a pretty good person. Only positive vibes to God. First of all, I would again remind you that whatever you feel or felt is beside the point. It's not necessarily a reflection of what is true. And this is what the Bible says is true of those who are unsaved, of you prior to your salvation, if you are indeed a believer. 
Second, may I remind you that the way that you got saved, the process of being saved in that process was you realizing your sinful depravity, realizing that you were damned unless God had mercy on you and forgave your sin. So though you may not have thought of yourself as an enemy of God, there was a moment where you sort of, that came to you. I am damned. I am justly damned unless I repent and believe in Christ. You were a weak, helpless, rebellious sinner who was in the end an enemy of God. Maybe all of us just need to agree with God about what He says about the unsaved, whether it's us prior to salvation, whether it's you if you're not a believer. This is what God says, weak, sinful, enemy of God. When you surrender and agree, that's summed up in the word confess, when you give into all that God wants of you, when you, when you deny yourself, you surrender all, when you say, Lord, I have nothing, I'm a dead sinner, I'm your enemy, I only deserve judgment and wrath. I need your mercy. I repent of my sin, but I even need your strength to repent of my sin. I believe in you, but help my unbelief. You're answering the call of the gospel. You're answering Christ's call to deny yourself when you do this. You're answering the call to relinquish even those closest relationships. And this is precisely what Jesus says back here in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is essentially saying, in order to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, which means to, to follow Him in terms of uh, your own death. Deny yourself. Give up even your family if that's what it takes. That's self-denial. It's not self-esteem. It's not finding purpose. It's not discovering your own potential, claiming victory. It is utter surrender to God. It is losing your life for Christ's sake. That's the basic command of the gospel. Repent, follow Christ, give up everything, surrender all. So when that happens, when that gospel is preached... That divides the human race. And I understand that people are in process, and sometimes it takes several times, and maybe some of you are in the middle of trying to figure all this out. I understand that. But basically speaking, that message divides every group of people who hears it into two, one of two groups. The group who loves it, the group who embraces it, maybe they're being saved, or maybe they, ha- maybe they have been saved, they've repented, but they love the story of repentance because they want to continue in their repentance and continue in their faith in Christ. They want to continue in this denial of self. They've discovered true peace and true joy, and so the message of the gospel, the message of self-denial is never resisted. It is something they enjoy and they rejoice in. And then there are those who don't like that gospel They're living in rebellion. They're dead in their sin. They're enemies of God. And they don't want to repent. 
And when they hear the message, friend, you are dead in your sin, you're helpless, you're hopeless, you're his enemy, be reconciled to God, deny yourself, surrender. When a faithful preacher preaches that to that cold heart, that person gets angry, they get frustrated. And usually, if they still want to be religious, sometimes they don't want to be religious anymore, but sometimes they do want to be religious, what they do is they go find a preacher who tells them what they want to hear. You're fine. Claim victory. Why do you think these listless, limp-wristed, smiling therapist preachers can fill stadiums with thousands of people? Because there are millions, hordes of folks who don't love the gospel. They love themselves. They've never repented. They don't have genuine faith. Even if they call themselves Christians, even if they say they're of the faith, even if they sing songs about Jesus, they don't want to deny themselves. They want to bless themselves. And so they get tired of hearing a preacher week in and week out tell them that they're not genuine, that they're fake Christians. And so they say, I'm done hearing about the fact that I'm lost. Let me go find a preacher who just affirms me for who I am. So they go. They find a place. They find a preacher who merely affirms them and gives them some therapeutic tips about life. That's the broad road that leads to death. Well, do you see how the gospel divides? The gospel is indeed divisive. This is a perspective vital to the work of the ministry of the apostles and and their friends who would go and ministry. He said, I want you to know this will divide. This message of self-denial, it will divide people. And if you're faithful to the gospel, it will be divisive. It's divided American Christianity, hasn't it? Like I said, on the one hand, you have those so-called Christians seeking affirmation, seeking health tips, life tips, a great experience. On the other hand, you have God's people, true Christ followers. They love and live for repentance, profound scriptural truth. They look for ways to apply it. Sermons on repentance are welcome to them. They want to understand the hard doctrines. They, our doctrines, hard truths, Scripture is loved. Preaching and teaching on discernment is appreciated. God's people love these things. You know, I've learned in, I don't know, 25 years of ministry now that God's people love God's Word. Yeah, there's always going to be those who don't love what you're doing if you're faithful to God's Word. There's always going to be people who are turning away and despising and scribbling little notes but there's also going to be a people who just love it. They eat it up. They can't get enough of the Bible. The call to self-denial, the call to repentance, they ingest it. They love it. They see it as the way to pre- peace and joy. So, the application is this. Let's be faithful to this message, not only to receive it and surround ourselves with true gospel preachers and not listen to so much of that junk that's out there, but also to speak the gospel, to not minimize or dumb down or make the gospel easy just so we get a hearing with somebody. Let's be faithful to ingest the gospel truth and to tell the gospel truth, but most importantly, that we would submit ourselves, deny ourselves, and follow Christ. Not easy to do this, but by God's grace, we can. Let's pray. Father, 
I pray first and foremost for those who are not believers who are watching this message, I pray that you would convict them of their sin, call them to genuine faith in Jesus Christ who did pay the penalty for their sin, who did produce the, right, the very righteousness they need to have a relationship with you. And I pray that they would finally lift that white flag and surrender everything and repent and say, God, I give up, I surrender, I deny myself, whatever you want, I follow you. And Father, give them boldness, give them strength, because I realize that some doing that, even now, some who are crying out to God in self-denial and repentance and faith, some are doing that to the detriment of their own relationships and their family. Perhaps they know their husband or their wife or their daughter or son or father or mother would mock them, would scoff them. But I pray that they would see the joy and the peace that you provide for them if they would only repent. For all of us, Lord, I pray that we would show discernment and that we would be faithful to the gospel. Help us do this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.